0: So one thing I've noticed about myself, the more books I read, and this year I'm on track to read more books than I've probably ever read, you know, such as The Nature of Running a Podcast, is you become more discerning with your reading choices the more you consume. And in the past, I used to find dozens and dozens of books that I'd consider stellar five-star reads. And the older I've gotten and the more I read, the less that seems to be the case. I'm much more discerning with my reading. I find a lot more things to nitpick, but I'm also pretty good at picking out things that are to my taste, so I don't get a lot of duds either. And this year, it took me until the very first week of April to read a book that I gave a full five stars. And that book is the one we're going to talk about today. Join me as I talk to Nahid Furoz Patel about Real Life by Brandon Taylor. Welcome to your favorite book. All right. So Nahid, welcome to the show. Uh, let's just jump right in. You know, you have a novel coming out. It's very exciting. Can you first start out by telling us a little bit about yourself as a writer and maybe a little bit about your book?
1: Sure. Uh, thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be talking about my novel and about uh, Brandon's novel later on. So my book, um, my, it's my debut novel. And it is, it's kind of hard to pin down. Um, It's about a young woman who grows up in a very, uh, very closeted very uh, suffocating patriarchal society. Um, Mm -hmm. Her mom's has issues with, you know, addiction and with um, alcoholism. And it's about her trying to kind of, you know, break free of, of the shackles of that society and kind of become her own person, very broadly speaking. And it's all set in India. Um, It actually, um, it it came out in India last year with Mm -hmm. HarperCollins around this time. Uh, And now it's going to be out in the U.S. um, on May 17th.
0: That's so exciting. And I think you encapsulated your book quite well. And this wasn't a question I had written down or anything, but, you know, you've had your book out in India for a year now and now it's coming out to the U.S. market Is there anything you are anticipating differently versus how your book might be received there versus here? Do you think there's going to be any
1: significant difference there? That's a really interesting question. Um, So when it came out in India, uh, I had a lot of support from my publishers, and they really believed in the book. And they gave me a lot of like, you know, just they were like a dream publisher, to be honest. Uh, And I think the book did find its readers. It's not a book that one would imagine would do, like, you know, would be, like, very popular because it it, it, it's, it delves into some really dark themes of, like, addiction, trauma, mm-hmm. uh, abuse, and stuff like that. But I was kind of, like, overwhelmed with, you know, how many people just reached out to me um, and, you know, it got shortlisted for a bunch of awards. And I think that and, – and, and let's not forget, it also came out at, like – Possibly the worst time. It was like at the height of the alpha wave, uh, mm. sorry delta wave, in India. So it was just chaos, you know, and we really didn't know what was going to happen because every everything had shut down. The whole country had shut down. Mm. But we did get lots of. I got lots of like messages from early readers, and uh, yeah, so it was a really positive experience.
0: Yeah, all- that that sounds like the most chaotic time to have a book in the world, yeah, and. Definitely. <laughs> I mean just knowing what I know from family and friends in yeah. India I mean that that pandemic yeah. response I mean we saw definitely chaos over here but it was like a different level of chaos over there summer last year you know yeah really significant
1: absolutely and so you know uh, honestly I completely forgot about my book I forgot that I had a book out because mm-hmm. I was just like, you know, frantically messaging my friends and messaging family and just trying to figure out if everyone's safe. So it really kind of disappeared from my mind. I was like, you know, and then when things eventually settle down, um, you know, I kind of went back to it and... Uh, yeah, I'm. Mean, I, I'm really, really moved and amazed that even though all this was going on, people were still like picking up the book and reading it and having taking the time to talk to me about it. I think I'm. I was felt really, really special about that.
0: Yeah, that's that's true, and I've I've heard this a lot with writers that have had books come out during the pandemic. There, people are still turning to art. People are still turning mm-hmm. to literature. You know, it's one of those things that's still there for you even in times of chaos, um, and so sort of coming to, I mean, speaking of chaos, like there's so much of it in your book. I think it's a good sort of segue. Um, One of the things I really liked about your book is how you handle addiction as a topic, which I feel Mm -hmm. like is not very spoken about in many literature I mean especially you know books set in India you don't see addiction at the forefront mm-hmm. as often and you have Numi as well as her mother Asha both of them have their struggles with alcohol yes. and both of them for them it stemmed in this idea of trauma and generational trauma mm-hmm. um, you have this line I can't remember the exact quotation but you brought up this idea of alcohol making it possible to cope with being a woman in the world You know, Mm -hmm. the level of trauma they're all facing, the way their agency has been taken away from them in many ways. Mm -hmm. And then there's just this societal expectation of drinking. They live in this very lavish, upper-class kind of lifestyle where drinking and partying is just kind of part of the way of life. And so I I guess I just, I didn't really have a question at the end of that. Mm -hmm. I'm just, I just appreciated how you brought in the complexities of something like addiction.
1: Yeah, I was always... Um, I was always going to approach addiction from a a view of empathy and understanding Mm -hmm. um, rather than judgment because, and, you know, I have said this in, in other interviews, but like the, the empathy that we extend to people who are suffering from like, you know, like an autoimmune disease or, Mm -hmm. or any other kind of physical ailment, um, we don't make fun of them. And we don't uh you know, we don't judge them. Like it's not a moral failing if somebody has diabetes, you know? Yeah. But uh sadly it is when somebody is suffering from addiction. Mm-hmm. And I kind of like wanted to, even though I think uh my main character is not the most empathetic, um, but I think that it was important for me to kind of, you know, paint um addiction in a way that makes people kind of understand that it is uh, very much out of the out of the hands of the person who was suffering it um yeah so basically that was what I was trying to do with it.
0: Yeah. And I think it was very clear that you approached it from this position of empathy. Mm-hmm. And I think that made a lot of difference. And you showed us the the nuance and the double standards, especially, you know, it's yeah. acceptable for men to drink and not so much for women and yeah. understanding where the, the line is and sort of speaking about those double standards. So without spoiling your book significantly, there is an event in the book that sort of centers uh, the Chauth Festival, uh, right. or what you allude to is mm-hmm. um, basically for those of you not in the know, it is a day of fasting that married Hindu women, especially in parts of North India, Um, They undergo for the health and well-being of their husbands, Mm -hmm. Um, but it's specifically wives fasting for their husbands. It's not practiced the other way around. Um, My family's from South India. I've spoken about this before. This wasn't a practice I really knew about until I watched it in certain Bollywood movies. Yeah. Um, But then I learned about it more and I'm like, oh, this is a festival that goes on. And in those movies, I'm trying to remember, I think DDLJ has a scene that features it, I, or I might be mistaken, it might be a different movie, mm-hmm. but it's portrayed as this very, you know, romantic loving sacrificial thing to do for someone. Um, but you show us sort of the darker patriarchal side of that. And I guess my question for you is, do you think this is a festival that is inherently sexist or does it come down to whether you're willingly participating or feeling pressured into doing so?
1: Oh, uh, well, that's, that's a really controversial question.
0: I know. I apologize. <laughs>
1: um, so I'm also from a part of the part of India that it is not that um, prevalent. You know, I'm not. I'm from like Maharashtra, uh, mm-hmm. close to Mumbai. So it wasn't like a thing. I didn't see it like really growing up. Um, but yes, it has been kind of romanticized and you know really. Uh, uh, you know, it's, it's a thing in a lot of Bollywood movies. DDLJ, yes, did, did have that, uh, scene where, you know, Shah Rukh Khan and, and Kajol are like, uh, doing it in secret because, yeah. you know, she's supposed to be engaged to somebody else. But I think that, um, you know, there are ways, I think everything can be interpreted like in a patriarchal way or like, you know, in a, in a more. Uh, in a more equal way I know Mm -hmm. people who both have do the fast together like both the spouses Mm -hmm. Um, and I think that that is you know that in my mind that seems much fairer I also know of you know women who have uh, had you know had breast cancer and have gone through chemo and survived, and they are fasting for the long lives of their husbands Mm. when I feel like clearly it should be the other way around as well you know um, and it's not questioned, um, you know. And I think that a lot of it has to do with just like conditioning and how we're socialized to look at it. And I do think that even though you you mentioned that you show I show the darker aspects of it, I don't really sh- I don't really I don't edit the the the, the, the narrator doesn't really editorialize yeah. the, the ritual for anybody. Like sh- there's nobody standing up and saying, "Oh my God, this is so patriarchal," you know. Mm-hmm. I'm kind it's of, all understated yeah i'm just kind of laying it all out um for the reader and then i i i think i leave it up to the reader to decide whether um you know this is this is okay or is it mm-hmm. is it mis- misogynistic so i do think that i leave that space i i've tried really hard in this book to leave as much space as i can for the reader to insert themselves mm-hmm. and um and that's a chancey thing to do because sometimes the reader gets it and then sometimes they're just like no, I need I need more, you know, I mm. need more I need to be led somewhere. Like I need mm. more guidance in understanding what's going on. But I, I definitely tried to take a step back and, you know, I tried not to put my hands on the scale for any of the any of these scenes, including yeah. the including the Chauth scene, the wedding scene. So yeah.
0: I think that's a great way of putting it, and you're right that there is space in the book to interpret as you will. And I think that leads nicely to what I was thinking and I've spoke I've asked a lot of my South Asian guests, especially those who are writing somewhat in a Western context, is there a pressure to over explain? you know, the cultural traditions, or is there this idea that, you know, I'm going to lay it out as is, and it is up to the reader to learn and to interpret. And it's not my job to educate. I'm here to tell a story. Do you feel that, you know, the fact that this book came out in India first, and then now is coming out in America, you know, sort of as is, do you think that sort of changed your overall approach as you were writing it? Or was the story meant to be told this way from the beginning?
1: Um, so it's not coming out as is the, the, the U S edition is slightly different from the Indian oh. edition. So it did, it did go through a round of, um, you know, another round of edits, but it was more, honestly, I didn't, it wasn't like I went back in to like explain things or, you know, kind of exoticize or perform in any way. It was more mm-hmm. about just, you know, tightening the language more or just getting things down the it, I, I felt really fortunate because like I got a second chance because I had all these things that I wanted to add in in terms of mm. just like scenes or something. And I got a second chance to do all of that, um, you know, and so I did that and I, ha- I had a, I have a lovely editor. I can't say enough good things about her. And she was really like, you know, the kind of person who would not be like, Oh, you need to, you know, italicize this, or you need to explain that. It was just, mm-hmm. okay. You just lay it out. And if people get it, they get it, you know?
0: Yeah. We all have Google. We can all look things up if we're confused, you know? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You know? And I'm really glad you did that. You really did give, I, I, I've i spoken before, I have the pet peeve of when things are overly italicized and overly explained. Yeah. And this is a world where, you know, first of all, I mean, I come from a South Asian context. To me, nothing felt unexplained. I mean, it's a totally different part of India too, and which is a totally different culture, but Mm -hmm. I felt that you gave us enough information to understand the story and just set an appropriate backdrop, which is a hard balance to strike, but I think you really achieved that.
1: Yeah. Thanks for that. Because I think that, you know, um, that we have so many small rituals and so many s- small things that keep happening in India that can you imagine if I had to preface everything well well now this is going to be like you know this ritual that's performed by wives so it would get so um expository and like just yeah. cumbersome um, yeah tedious yes yeah exactly so I, I definitely you know want to just dive into it yeah every single time and
0: so sort of coming back to you as a, as a writer. So your bio, you know, it speaks for itself. You've been published in all of these places. You have an MFA from Columbia University. And I have a lot of, you know, aspiring writers who listen to the show. And I, the question I hear all the time or hear from people who are writing is to MFA or to not to MFA. Wow. Can you speak a little bit about, you know, what motivated you to pursue an MFA and what that experience was like for you?
1: Okay. Um, so MFA, but with caveats. Right.
0: Oh, yeah. Okay.
1: <laughs> so I was um, really I, I again, I felt really fortunate because I went to an MFA program, which had a lot of, you know, POC uh, mentors and writers and like successful writers. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was in a uh, year long novel workshop, which I think is particularly unusual for the MFA, because as far as I know, the MFA kind of works in this like you submit short, short stories. And then mm-hmm. you kind of workshop them, and they have to be like be like manageable chunks of work because you're just you're just you know doing twenty yeah. pages at a time. But I was very fortunate to be in a year long thing where we were workshopping hundreds of pages, and mm-hmm. so I really started to understand how a novel works, you know, and the the, the a novel is a slightly different creature than a short story. Mm-hmm. And like I said, like my workshop was mostly people of color, which again, I thought was really helpful. And I came out, I think that I did, when I was in the program, I didn't really have the chance to make a lot of friends or connections. But it's really interesting, because when I came out of the program, I, you know, started connecting with a lot of people that I had met during it. And now I have these really great, like sustained friendships. And I think it's great to find mentors, but like, your peers are sometimes going to be your best mentors and I've yes. definitely been like wonderfully supported by people who I workshopped with people who I met you know I was also doing a lot of translation work while I was in there so mm. that added another dimension to uh, what I was learning and how I looked at language because I never thought of myself as even though I'm, I'm fluent in two languages But, you know, somehow you just take Hindi as like, oh, it's Hindi. (laughs) You (laughs) don't think of it as like, oh, I'm fluent in Hindi, you know, which is a thing. Um, But I did it just like translating is so amazing and how it changes how your brain looks at language. So I was really glad to have got that, um, you know, that opportunity as well. So, yeah, I think that and like I said, like if you want to do an MFA, like make sure that it meets certain needs that you have. I I love that nuanced
0: response because you're right. There's no one size fits all MFA program. Mm -hmm. I like that you pointed out what was important to you, the ability to workshop larger pieces of work, Mm -hmm. you know, and suit your style as a novel writer. Mm -hmm. And also, I mean, as we're going to get into with real life, you know, the need to sort of be surrounded by people who can relate to your experiences as a person of color, because as we see in real life, as we talk about, there's a flip side to the being surrounded by whiteness. Oh, yeah. And MFAs kind of have this reputation of being a majority white kind of program yeah. where POC voices can be minimized. And so I'm glad, you know, I'm so glad for you that you found a space that really honored your perspective and was surrounded by like-minded people.
1: Oh yeah, definitely. And uh, you know, they were they were not South Asians. They were like they were right. POC but from other like you know other ethnicities and it was um, it was astounding because they got so many of the small nuances and honestly Mm -hmm. I think I've been really in a way fortunate because even though you know my early readers were not quote-unquote desis or indians a Mm -hmm. lot of the things that I thought that people would miss because they're not from that culture they they totally got it you know Mm -hmm. and they understood and they could like you know okay this makes sense which was like for me it was delightful
0: Yeah, I I really love that. And uh, someone who's been toying with the idea myself, you know, that's definitely something I'll keep in my back pocket. Mm -hmm. Um, And so now I want to bring this over to Real Life, which is the book you chose for today's episode. And as we were talking about before, this is kind of a first for the podcast, you know, having the book of a former guest now being the subject of a discussion. Because for my longtime listeners, we had Brandon Taylor on the show back in June of 2021. He talked about persuasion by. Jane Austen. It was a wonderful episode. It was great to talk to him about his short stories and about just his work in general. And now we're sort of diving into his debut novel, which I was shocked when he told me he wrote this novel in five weeks. I was like, are you kidding me? Like this is a masterpiece. You wrote this in five weeks? Like blew my mind. Um, but to provide everybody with a bit of a summary, as always, we try to avoid spoilers, but just a little summary um, for those of you who may not have read the book. So Wallace is a Black queer PhD student at a Midwest university. He is surrounded by whiteness and enveloped by the traumas of his past. And over the course of an eventful weekend, Wallace can no longer remain distant from his peers, and he can't deny a series of events that have made him who he is in sense. And to put things bluntly, shit hits the fan. <laughs> so <laughs> that's essentially sort of a broad stroke summary of this book. But it's it's hard to encapsulate because to me, this is a book that's less about the, the events and more about the writing. It's more about the tension, more about the detail. Mm-hmm. Um, but before we dig into some of the specifics, um, Nahid, can you tell us a little bit about when you first read this book and what you remember your impressions being?
1: I um, So one of my strongest impressions was I felt like Wallace, you know, in this incredibly white space in this, in this PhD program, he was kind of like, it felt like he was rock climbing up a cheese grater. Like, you know, like progress is possible, but incredibly painful and and takes so much out of you. And I think that, you know, he just, he was so uncomfortable in that space. Um, and I, I don't know, I'm a big um, metaphor and analogy person. So I, I, I really felt like the, the, the space of the novel, like this PhD program was very much reflective of his own like interior interiority mm-hmm. just feeling like he doesn't fit in and he doesn't belong you know I think he ca I think Wallace carries that in him wherever he goes like even when he's not necessarily in that in that milieu
0: Hmm. yeah That's a, that's a great way of putting it that I can't get that image out of my head, rock climbing up a cheese grater. Cause that's (laughs) exactly right. You know, he's making strides, he's making progress, but things are bringing him down and every single move forward, you know, comes with its pain and comes with that. You want to kind of retreat back into yourself every time. And let's, let's start with the writing itself. So this book, this book is beautifully written. I mean, Mm -hmm. I say that all the time, but this book you know, you would think a book that takes place over just a single weekend, it's a very limited scope. Yeah. You'd think it may just bore you with details yeah. or there's just not enough material for a whole book. But yeah. this is a testament to his writing. It holds our interest from beginning to end. Mm-hmm. Like, I wanted to know how this played out. I wanted to know how the story was being told. Yeah. There are these beautiful short sentences yeah. and this beautiful rhythm to the prose. And I think the short sentences, especially, you know, it, it mirrors kind of Wallace's introspective yet emotionally stunted nature you know yeah things are sort of written in these bite-sized ways that mirror kind of how he's processing the world so yeah I, I just loved how that particular story was written the prose isn't you know cumbersome it's not pretentious yeah. it just tells it like it is
1: yeah i think that brandon um in on you know i follow i, I pretty much read everything he writes mm-hmm. um so it's difficult for me to extricate, um, extract real life from his other writing because I read everything mm-hmm. as a composite. So real life is very much enmeshed with his critical work, his essays, and I, I remember on Twitter he 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 you know he keep he kept talking about Mavis Gallant, um, mm-hmm. the writer, and how much she was like an influence on his writing or how much he loved her. And I think that I can really see that. Yeah, um,
0: I'm not familiar with Mavis Gallant. Can you do you know a little bit about her?
1: Ah, there's this one short story that was also kind of um, repurposed by another like South Asian writer for the New Yorker. And I don't have the, my memory is short as shit. So I can't remember anything, but um, I can probably look it up. But yeah, you know, she just writes these incredibly... Um, recursive and beautiful uh, scenes. Nothing much happens, but you're so entranced by just the space that she creates, you know, um, that you're willing to stay there. Mm, I like that a lot, because that's a good way of describing
0: Brandon's work as well, you know? It's these very encapsulated little scenes where not much is happening sort of from a distance, but you come in and you're, you're brought in real close to these characters. And it's like, so the the famous scene in this book is the dinner party scene, which we're not going to spoil the exact events for you, but nobody writes an awkward scene better than Brandon Taylor, in my opinion. Like, yeah. he and in Filthy Animals, his short story collection, he has some dinner party scenes. Like they really come out here and just, you think you are at that table. And yeah. I found myself wanting to be at that table, not because it was awkward, because Wallace needed another POC advocate. He didn't I wanted yeah. to be at that table with him, yeah, and, and telling everyone like, "Yo, what the fuck? This isn't cool." Like, <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. So I think that that's where his genius is because um, he is so good at getting the reader to advocate for his his protagonist. Like, even mm-hmm. though we know Wallace is deeply flawed, like he has this, yes. he has this evil petty side to him and he he just he puts it on display he doesn't hide he doesn't hold back but Mm -hmm. at the same time you know you're willing as a reader to go go to bat for him which is is not it's it's kind of a complicated really tricky thing to do on the page yeah Um, but he executes it so like you know it's like a you know it's like watching like an olympic a diver like you think that you know swoosh and they go into the water without a splash and you think it's it looks so easy but it's so incredibly difficult and you know um so so well like well done yeah
0: it's funny you know bringing that in it after reading Wallace and then reading your book and reading Numi, yeah. I saw those ties there because you know Numi not surrounded by whiteness, but she is surrounded by patriarchy, yeah. and she's frequently in the middle of these very difficult, tenuous situations. And she, like you mentioned earlier, she's not always the most likable of characters. She has yeah. a selfish streak. She has a mean streak. Yeah. She doesn't always think about the feelings of others. Yeah. The way Wallace sometimes doesn't think about the feelings of others. Yeah. But at the same time, you want to you want to go to bat for Numi the way you want to go to bat for Wallace. So I saw that there.
1: Yeah. I mean, I'm glad you you wanted to go to bat for her because it's not always been the case. Mm -hmm. Um, A lot of people have. um, But I think some of the best feedbacks, uh, a friend of mine just wrote, you know, she she wrote back. She's she's a she lives in London. She's she is British. Um, She's a she's white. And Mm -hmm. she wrote the back about the book to me and she's like you know even though I did not like Numi, that and this is why I think the book is really good because even though I really didn't care for her I was willing to go along and I I was invested in the stakes of the book yeah. and I was like that's great like you know that's what I want like even if you if you even if you can't really like uh empathize with the with Noomi if, mm-hmm. if, if you're still pulled in enough to go along on her journey with her and see what you know Look at all the things that she's pointing out to you. I think that mm-hmm. that's incredible. I think Brandon it's it's probably not accurate to compare Numi to Wallace because Wallace is so much more finely crafted as a protagonist, and Brandon has really taken so much more care with him um and you know that's something that I can hopefully learn from and you know maybe in my next book or the next one after that uh, I can right. do it. <laughs>
0: I mean Wallace I mean coming back to to Wallace I thought he was just you're right he's such an engaging character yeah. and what I loved what we were doing with Wallace is um the 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 talk of race and racism and identity this it's not it's very much central in this book but it's not heavy handed um, because it's talking about the subtleties of racism, the white liberalism, mm-hmm. as you will. You yeah. know, racism isn't just hate speech and yeah, yeah. you know flag waving, and it's yes. not always obvious. Yes. Here we see the um, just the the microaggressions, the shifting of blame, yes. or it's not standing up for it in the right situations, not recognizing the power dynamics, yeah. you know, the the quieter parts of racism that can eat away at you. And yes. I thought this book. Just handle that so well. And I don't know that, that in itself, I was like, I got to take notes. That was done so well.
1: Yeah. And you know what? Like um, I've only been living in the U S for the past 10 years. Mm -hmm. Um, And obviously I visited before that with family and, uh, and I never picked up on any of the things. And now i you know, only after living here and experiencing it firsthand, like I can really connect with these small, moments uh in the book that are just like so and he's so good at like secondhand discomfort right like he's so that mm. cool like you're kind of like fidgeting in your seat while reading those scenes because you you know you can feel it
0: you know mm-hmm. the cringe the cringe is real you know it's it's and it's a good cringe though because you, cringe, yeah. you, feel it. you feel it in your body and it, it yeah. was just done so well and I, I would say, you know, this book carries its tension throughout. If I had any criticisms of this book, I thought the ending was a little weak, uh-huh. Um, but that might have just been because some of the middle was so stellar that the ending just kind of ended a little weakly. Yeah. But this isn't a book that, you know, it ha- it doesn't have a huge narrative highs and lows. Yeah. So it's very quiet. Yes. It's very understated. Yeah. But it has that special power in it, which I thought was, you know, fabulous.
1: Yeah. Yeah. To be, to be fair, it's a difficult book to end. Like, how do you end yeah. something like that, you know? Exactly. So it's, it's kind of, like, really hard to, like, kind of have a, you know, tie things up in a neat little bow. So I can kind of, you know, understand why we, one would feel that way about the end.
0: Yeah. And so many of the other characters, I know we've talked a lot about Wallace, but so many of the other characters stood out as well. I mean, you have Miller, yeah. for example, and yeah. Miller is... I don't know how to he's yeah. clearly like deeply hurt and deeply flawed but at the same time you know this isn't a great situation yeah. and it, it was just so complex that like it's hard to just you can't put anybody in this book into a good guy or bad guy box yeah. not even wallet yeah. really
1: yeah
0: and everybody's and she even even dana who like feels yeah. very much in a bad guy box yeah. like you can see nuance there and yeah that i don't know i thought that was just beautiful even in a book that's so focused on the interiority of one character we still get the sense of all these other characters too
1: yeah yeah but also i i can also you know you feel how deeply painful it is for wallace just like um he feels so trapped um -hmm. and i've definitely felt like that at in certain points of time in my life and you know And in that way, he is kind of similar to Numi because Numi also feels incredibly trapped. And so, and, you know, coming back to the first question that you asked about, like how drinking is a way to kind of deal with the world as a woman. I think Mm -hmm. that there's definitely a need to self-medicate or to, you know, just kind of numb oneself from the constant Mm. barrage of just misogyny and patriarchal nonsense that's constantly thrown your way. Yeah. Or thrown at thrown at these characters, so in that sense, I could really kind of connect with Wallace um, mm-hmm. and understand him.
0: Yeah, that's a good point. And it's, it's just a one, I, it's so hard to describe this book in a lot of detail. Everyone, if you haven't read real life, I mean, I had it on my to be read list for so long and glad I finally got to read it. It's really just a beautifully told story. Like I read it over the course of a weekend. It just kind of had me like in its hold and I couldn't put it down. I mean, it was, and it's, it's not a lighthearted read. It's not an easy read, but it's, it felt very moving and very necessary, which I greatly appreciated. And I mean, all of Brandon's work that I've read has been, you know, absolutely stellar. And I'm so excited for what he's putting out in the world. And I was so happy to see him blurb your book too, which was
1: so great to see. How did that feel for you? That was, yeah. So he's just like, you know all my all the people who blurb my book have been so incredibly generous um and it's funny like how things you know when you like blur getting blurbs is one of the most like nerve-wracking things because you're just like reaching out to people hey you know can will you uh but you know because I'm publishing with an indie press a great indie press but for for a writer like me a blurb from Brandon can can mean a lot you know it can be yeah. can be, yeah. c- be career making um, mm-hmm. I'm so obviously super grateful, and like he did enjoy the book. So you know that's that's always great too, right?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's
0: very validating, you know. Yeah, just really
1: validating. That is really validating. You're right. That's a great word. I don't like to use that word too often because you know it can mean so many things. But it is as a writer to, to have somebody who you really admire and like, like enjoy your work and are, is willing to blurb your book. It's 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 wonderful.
0: Yeah. And, you know, sort of continuing the conversation into other books. And so, as I mentioned, you know, we always like to offer another book that writers or or, that if you enjoyed this one, you might enjoy. So the one I brought up into this conversation, not a book, actually a play. Uh And the play that kept coming to mind for me was the classic, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf Uh by Albie. I mean, not only because Virginia Woolf was mentioned outright in real life, but because that was the first time I had seen just like, the beauty of an awkward scene, the beauty of awkwardness really brought onto the page. And I mean, I haven't seen Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf performed. I imagine that's a completely different experience. I've only read it written. Yeah. But that whole setup of the the fraught dinner party and everybody's dirty laundry coming out slowly to the surface. Yeah, this, That's something that's brought here in this book too, and almost felt like a spiritual predecessor in a way. And so that, that book, you know, if you haven't read that classic, that's the one that came to mind for me, Yeah, but um, Nahid, I'm interested in knowing, you know, either a book that, you know, kind of falls in the same sort of veins for you that gave you feelings of real life or just maybe another book that you really, really love and want to shout out.
1: Wow, um, you know what immediately came to mind was Rachel Cusk, mm. and like I know she has her trilogy and all that, but there's this one book. I'm just gonna double check the name real quick. I think it's Arlington Park.
0: Hmm. I think you're right.
1: Yeah, Arlington Park, and mm-hmm. maybe not her best work, but again, she's you know it has that dinner party aura to it because. It's from the points of view of a lot of these really disaffected bored uh, women in like an English you know in a, in a London suburb and mm-hmm. a lot of the same like you know just microaggressions and like kind of tiny ugly things that come out during the course of like a day and you know she's she I, I think she's she's brilliant um I really yeah. love the way she writes. So yeah, that book definitely
0: You're one of like my few like I've had a few guests recently that have mentioned Rachel Cusk and I'm like, I need to actually get around to reading Rachel Cusk. Yeah. I've had her books on my shelf for so long and I need to make time for that.
1: Yeah. She she said something so funny about I, I watched her in an interview recently. Um and she said something so funny about like writing, like writing a novel. She said it's like a it's like a an elephant pregnancy. Which is, you know, an elephant is, I think, pregnant for like two years or something. So <laughs> like, you know, for a long time, nothing happens, and then suddenly everything <clears throat> happens. Oh my god, like, that's so
0: true. That's a great way of putting it. Oh my gosh, two years of pregnancy—that sounds nightmarish. <laughs>
1: know, you know, I have a tendency to throw out these facts, but I should probably look it up and make sure that's true. But it, in any case, it does uh, sound very accurate. Yeah,
0: I I think that that's a great way of putting it. Oh my gosh. Well, so if you haven't, you know, gotten any of these books onto your to read list, I certainly recommend it. Obviously, Real Life by Brandon Taylor. Definitely Mirror Maid of Rain by Nahid Faroz Patel. Definitely recommend it. I really enjoyed your book. I thought you brought up a lot of necessary ideas and created a wonderfully flawed protagonist, which I always love reading. I love fraught mother-daughter relationships. Mm -hmm. Your book was giving me, um, almost burnt sugar by Avni Doshi vibes, which is another book I really loved that had these difficult mother-daughter relationships. Um, I love seeing those themes being explored more. They're really interesting to read about. And I'm I'm so happy for you. I'm so glad that your book is, you know, making its international debut here in the United States and um, Nahid, if
1: everyone's looking to find you, where can we find you in your book? um So I'm on Twitter. um I think my Twitter handle is Nahid Firoz, and mm-hmm. I'm also pretty active on Instagram, where I'm na- at Nahid Firoz Patel. um And you know, yeah, I'm pretty much always online, so you can always like. And I'm also I'm trying out this whole Goodreads thing, so I finally got like my author page, and I'm still learning like about mm-hmm. it, and I'm a little i'm a little terrified of good reads but like i'm really want, i really think it's a great way maybe i can try and engage with readers or answer questions because i really want to kind of you know use the book as a as a means to kind of understand what people are uh, reading and what they're looking for uh, while reading because i yeah. think that's so interesting and like you know the, the the reason it's called a mirror made of rain is because i i feel like that books are a mirror like, when we read, we're just looking for ourselves, essentially, in mm-hmm. a book. And I really wanted, uh, like I said earlier, I, I wanted to create enough space uh, in the book for the reader to kind of find themselves in it in some way.
0: Yeah, I, I think it was a very fitting title. I mean, though, that imagery definitely came out on the page. And I, I'm happy you're on Goodreads, but, you know, as <laughs> someone who podcasts and is privy to reviews, like, don't get too bogged out in reviews. yeah.
1: <laughs> I know, yeah, that's that that terrifies me. <laughs> you definitely find
0: your boundaries and find your space. But everyone, definitely check out Mirror Made of Rain. We'll have links to buy it in the show notes. And Nikki, take you. Thank you so much for your time. This was much appreciated.
1: Thank you. This was great. I had such a good time.
0: And thank you all for listening. If you like the show, please let me know about it. Every single podcast platform has a way to rate and review. Apple, Spotify, Google, what have you. Give us five stars. It really does help out, and it mostly just helps my ego, let's be real. Um, Some housekeeping details. Next week will be our May Short Story Book Club episode, and we are coming back to the world of actual short stories. We're talking about Inventory by Carmen Maria Machado with former guest Raina Patel, and so there will be a link to the story in the show notes. If you haven't read it before, trust me, you want to read the story before tuning into the episode. It's really short and well worth your time. So that'll be next Thursday. And then you can follow the podcast on Instagram and Twitter at YFB podcast. And uh, well, I think that's it. Have fun and happy reading. <laughs>